How do you successfully create a new B2B market category? This is the question that many founders ask themselves, but it's a very niche topic and there's just not a lot of content out there from people who've truly taken a shot at creating a new market category. So that's why we've created this show. So at G2, we have over 2,100 different software categories now. As I mentioned, when we started 10 years ago, we only had one, which was CRM software. What we're doing at Timescale is we're redefining the database category. Montecarlo is pioneering a category called data observability. The subcategory interview intelligence is new. We are the leader. There's a lot of category creators that are no longer with us. Uh, they're in the, the great category graveyard somewhere. In each episode, we'll learn the backstory behind the B2B founders' category creation efforts. We'll learn what worked, what didn't, and tactical insights for how you can build a winning category strategy. I'm your host, Brett Stapper, CEO of Frontlines Media. Now, let's jump in to today's episode. Hey, everyone, and thanks for listening. Today, I'm speaking with Gil Alouche, CEO of Metadata, a marketing OS platform that's raised $50 million in funding. Gil, thanks for chatting with me today. Thanks for having me. Yeah, no problem. So I want to begin this conversation with a fun question. And you may recognize this question from your own podcast. And that question is, what is a hashtag fail moment that you experienced in your career? I am familiar with that question. I have many. Let me say that I have hashtag fail moments all over, written all over about the, the history of metadata. I would say a recent one, a recent one for me is doing a poor job on the sensitiveness of some personal change. You know, I basically didn't look into all the details, didn't properly, because there were a lot of changes that we were making, I guess that's my excuse, but I failed to let someone know, you know, with enough time that the change is happening and they kind of like figured it out. And, you know, I've been trying to fix it since unsuccessfully, but that's the latest hashtag real moment that is teaching me something that I can recall. What would be your takeaway there then? So if there's a personnel change that's coming just to communicate sooner? It's more than that. It's so the replacement. There were personal changes. So pe some people were terminated and some people were hired. I would say, and I already started taking action on that. Well, the first thing I did is I, I mentioned that fuck up in, excuse my language, in the all hands, just so that everyone remembers that I make many, many, many fuck ups all the time. And so I mentioned that that was for a second one that we, in the offsite that we had for leadership, we actually had a session about doing transitions properly, like have an actual protocol, one person was owning it. So that's coming together. But at three, the third one, but actually the most important one is to remind myself to also not make decisions out of fear. Sometimes when I make decisions that could be like, you know, like a very, could be sensitive with the company, I sometimes think about the incidences where it didn't work out and that leads me to operate more in a more corporate manner. Okay, how do I do it by the book from a compliance perspective, minimize the risk for this and minimize the risk for that. And I forget about the 80% of the situation in which it worked out perfectly well to be honest and authentic and give people ahead of, you know, way, way ahead of time and, and you know, remember that there is relationship behind it, so on and so forth. And sometimes they let it get to me and I don't do it. And so that was the biggest lesson learned for me, not to be afraid of these situations because they're going to happen anyway, but I should still act the way I think is best. And does that come naturally for you to own your fuck ups and when you make a fuck up to own it? Or does that, was that something you had to like nurture and develop over time? Interesting. I don't think I've been asked that before. I think I grew up owning fuck ups very early. And it's something that I demand back from everyone I work with. I expect fuck ups to happen constantly. 
but accountability is very high on my list. Hmm. Makes a lot of sense. And, and that's interesting. Now let's talk a little bit about your podcast. I know we mentioned it there in the first question, but longtime listener, I think you did 20 or 30 episodes and I loved listening to it. I remember where I was, I was on a trip in Montana and I was scrolling through Spotify looking for episodes about category creation and bam, I found a whole podcast all about it. And I was so excited. So talk to us about that podcast and talk to us about some of those lessons that you learned from all of those interviews. You know, it was so interesting. The Category Creator podcast became an interesting part of Metadata in a very particular stage. So I started this podcast totally by chance. I raised the Series A. I remember that was the timing. We raised the Series A and we're like, well, if you want to raise the Series B, better, you know, better create a category, right? That's like basically kind of how it goes. And then I was thinking, okay, I need to invite some people who created categories. So first one was easy. Mark Oregon created the marketing automation one with Eloqua. That one was Godard with G2 and, and reviews. And then there was uh, Manny Medina from Outreach. And Manny, when I invited him, he's like, oh, yeah, I'll come to your webinar. Because that's what I, I called it. I was like category, crea category creation webinar. And he's like, I'll come to your webinar. And he kind of like, he said it in like a, in a, you know, a different way. I was like, what? It's like, no, it's just like, you know, a webinar is kind of 1990s. Why don't you create a podcast about category creation and keep bringing other people? I was like, okay, that's a great idea. I will do that. And that's pretty much why it became a podcast versus a one-time webinar. But what we learned from it is that simply by asking people about category creation, about the idea of category creation, good idea, not good idea, people have different opinions about it. And we had everyone, you know, the, from the authors of Play Bigger to like consultancies who do that. To the actual tactics, like, okay, let's stop for a second about this, the, the philosophical conversation about category creation. Yeah, I actually want to do it. What do I do? And we basically collected, I remember particular examples, like Manny Medina talking about pricing, being mm -hmm. out of everything that he did, he said pricing was the biggest thing that got us to the category, which was completely unexpected answer. Or I forgot who else gave me this advice. It was about uh, rallying up your customers to call Forrester and Gartner and tell them about your product and ask questions about your product to get gardeners and forester analysts to wake up and realize that there is a new vendor in the street. So some of those tactics I thought were genius and not written anywhere. And so mm -hmm. just by interviewing and asking those questions and collecting them, putting them into a small playbook, that was super, super helpful. And I would say another thing that was super interesting from the podcast is that once you put a bunch of founders and CEOs together in a room, the conversation is going to go into a therapy session for founders and CEOs. You know, us talking about all kinds of shit that we think no one else understands and talking about growth and why that's difficult and the personal life impact, so on and so forth. And I found that to be amazing. You know, it was so good to smoke a joint and do a shot and talk about the things that we think we only deal with, but it's actually extremely common. That became a big piece that I really liked about the podcast. Did you ship alcohol to everyone before every episode? I could never figure that part out. I did. I did ship alcohol to people. I used uh, this app called Drizzly. Mm -hmm. And yeah, I would basically ask people ahead of time, what do they want to drink? I would ship them a large amount of that particular, so some for the podcast, at least two, two drinks, if not more. We got shit faced in some of them, I'll tell you. Like some of those yeah. podcasts, we were like four or five drinks in. And wow. I, I stopped <laughs> drinking in September, so like I can't, I can't do this one again. But it, I became like, it was Friday evening. Think about it, it's like Friday, 5 p.m. It's like, what else am I going to do? You know, like I finished with yeah. meetings. And so um, it was pretty funny. And then some people who didn't drink, you know, they would smoke or people were in a good mood, which I think definitely, it almost mimicked the, you meet someone at the bar, mm -hmm. you know, and you kind of get into this like loose conversation. 
I think that's why I love that podcast so much. It didn't feel like overly produced. It didn't feel scripted. It didn't feel like people were coming on there with like a media narrative that their PR firm gave them. But now we know the truth. They were just drunk or high out of their minds. <laughs> that's very accurate. And I tried to, to start a really honest conversation. Every time they would go into a pitch because people can help them themselves, they would have to do a shot. That was part of the rule. And every, you know, a sales pitch is a media drink. And uh, I will tell you, I had one person I won't mention who did read from the fucking screen. I remember I saw him talk and I was like, this dude is reading from a script for sure. Right now I can see his eyes going. And I was like, no, that's like the worst. He killed, it killed the energy of the podcast. I was like, what is happening right now? How did we move from like being loose and raw to reading someone's script? So I was, I was, I think I was able to get him a little bit off the script, but yeah, it's not interesting. I think when you have that, that's not my style uh, for podcast. Now, you don't have to take a shot here, so let's talk about your pitch, though. This is the pitch part. So give us the pitch. What does metadata do? What does metadata do? So metadata is for B2B companies that are spending, they have a marketing spend of, let's say, at least 40K a month or so. And those companies who need to fill their pipeline, their sales, sales folks with, with qualified pipeline can do that with metadata by automating all the technical repetitive mundane tasks in marketing. So instead of essentially you know, running many different types of campaigns on different channels like LinkedIn and Facebook and Google AdWords coming up with different creative and different text variations and UTM tags and attribution models. Instead of doing all that work, technical repetitive mundane work manually, Metadata is a start to finish solution that essentially defines your total address of a market, all of the companies and all the people within those companies that should buy your product or service. And then after it, is, it defines it together with you using all the data, we have a very large data set. After you define your TAM, the platform essentially experiments at scale. It can run 10 campaigns for you, 100, 1,000 automatically mm-hmm. to fine-tune into the 15, 20% of your campaigns that are actually yielding pipeline in an economical manner. So like a dollar in, you get more than a dollar out with revenues. And in terms of pipeline, sometimes it's $1 to $20 in, in triggered pipeline. That's essentially the platform. It's for companies who are who want to build and scale their their pipeline and they don't want, they want to abstract all the complexity of executing campaigns to build that pipeline. And I've been following your journey very closely, so I hope I have this right, but I believe your market category is marketing OS. Is that correct? That's exactly right. Marketing operating system at our core, experimentation and data is at our core and AI, but there are different elements in which the marketing operating system goes into, for example, website personalization, you know, making sure that every prospect that comes to your website, whether they're a customer or if they're a prospect or if they come from one industry or another, they see a completely different version of your website, a different menu, different header. And so there are other elements of B2B marketing that can be completely automated. And we're trying to to bring a lot of the ideas from the consumer marketing world. The consumer marketing world is like in 2050. You know, they're like super advanced. You know, everything is micro-targeted. They know everything about you. They know when to serve you an ad, what creative to put there, what color. For everything they just all the sophistication is there it's completely automatic b2b is like in the 1900s like it's completely you know it's like still csvs of accounts and domain names it's still like one blast to 500,000 people so we're just trying to bridge that gap uh using experimentation in ai and can you talk to us about what it took to get to the point that you could have an answer to that question of what is your market category a lot of founders that I speak to and I ask them about, you know, what's your market category? They'll say, oh, we don't really fit into any of the established categories, but very few are able to say, here's our category term. Here's the problem we solved. And yeah, we're, we're making this real. This is on the website. It's you know, in our marketing material, in the sales collateral. So what did it take? What was happening behind the scenes that you could answer that question? 
Yeah, I would say there were probably three categories of things that, that were happening. One of them is a lot of internal discussions. So discussions after collecting those data collections. So collecting a lot of data from our customers, from our analysts, from G2 reviews, from Gong conversation, you know, really understanding how do customers perceive it when we ask them who we are. And we, we got to the conclusion that the perception is that we automate all the technical repetitive mundane tasks. Which is mm-hmm. true. That's exactly why we started a company to automate. You know, I'm a software engineer in my background, and that's exactly what I did. I used my software engineering skills to automate all the technical, repetitive, mundane tasks that are in B2B marketing. And so we started with demand generation, but there were many other technical, repetitive, mundane tasks. And so we started looking into other areas, and that's when we realized that we were essentially building this platform, this operating system, where a marketer has to log in in the morning and go to sleep at night. And this operating system essentially does a lot of the things that are usually completely abstracted. And we, we got to that conclusion because we did the research. You know, we started looking into how, what's the category of our, some of our perceived competition? What's the status quo? If you don't use metadata, what do you do? And so after doing that research and getting all these internal discussions, uh, we had a few, kind of a few names that we ended up with. Uh, operating systems, operating system, we saw the comparables of operating systems in other verticals. And mm-hmm. saw that there's a lot of similarity between how, you know, other like an HR OS will define itself. And so at some point you you make a decision and say, okay, if customers are comfortable talking about you that way, and if the idea behind it, the ideology of automating technical repetitive mundane tasks is encapsulated within our operating system that abstracts technical repetitive mundane tasks for you. Mm-hmm. And if our competitors are, there's a good chance that our competitors are going to define themselves that way as well. You jump into it. And I remember, I do remember very strongly that there was an objection to it, a marketing operating system. I was like, what the hell is marketing operating system? How do we even explain this, this concept? And we went through it a few times because it was difficult. It was like, kind of like, all right, I hope it's going to work. You know, we hope this is going to, to be accepted. But there was objection, rightfully so. But I also remember that a few months after we made a decision, one of the competitors in the market came up and was suddenly on their homepage, marketing operating system. So it's chiching. That sounds good. You have a competitor who is who is agreeing with this category. That's a that's wonderful news to me. Yeah, we had Godard on from G two as well, and that's what he said. He said that's what I can't remember who his example was, but he had some example of a company that came to him and they created a category, and and the reason it was successful was because they joined forces with all of the competitors. Which I think that's very interesting because I think most founders like to kind of pretend that competition doesn't exist, or at least a lot of the founders I talk to, they live in this world where you ask them who are your competitors and they get very specific and they say, well, well, no one's competing just like us. So I think that's good validation, right? When the competitors join in. Oh, absolutely. And by the way, we use, in our research, we actually used a lot of G2 data. We worked strong, very closely with them because they have so much data. So we actually, we worked a lot with our data sets to define the category with Godard and his team. But yeah, I would agree what you said about competition and it's bullshit, to be honest. It's, it, I think it's one of those things that we as CEOs are being taught in like the Silicon Valley school. It's like, it's together with the stupid lesson of, Never say your valuation when you're raising money. It's like, it's, it's just like, it's things that, uh, you know, you're told not to, like, or you, you get to the understanding of to answer that question in a vague manner so that you don't plug yourself into a particular, you know, people are afraid, oh, so you're just a better ABM. Like, that's what they, you know, we used to be like, oh, you're just a better account based market, you're just the better advertising system, better analytics. But if you don't have competitors, the only other thing you can say is that you're changing the status quo. You know, if you're changing the status quo, but even if you change the, the status quo, still you should have something like a spreadsheet, you know, and, and Tableau is status quo. So I do think it's very important to define your competition 
as an investor, that's the first thing that I ask. When I see a, a, a startup pitching, I always ask them, who's your comp- you know, what's your competition? If I'm, if I'm not aware of your tool, what am I using today instead? And you have to answer that question. You, know, you must know. Mm-hmm. And did you write a POV and did you do lightning strikes? Did you kind of follow that play bigger playbook that's out there? Or did you go down a different path and combine different things together from different guests that you had on the podcast? We combined different things from different guests that we had in the podcast, including one of the authors of Play Bigger, mm-hmm. who, whom we did a workshop with, and they helped us with some more customer interviews. And we did some of those best practices mm-hmm. in the book, but we kind of stitched our own process, I would say. That's what it feels like when I go through your websites. I get like a, a hint of Play Bigger and then like a hint of Strategic Narrative and Andy Raskin and then a few others all combined. So it makes sense given the history of the podcast. That's, that's exactly right. Andy also taught me a few interesting. And I know Andy for, for a while back, he told me some very valuable lessons there on the narrative, which was, you know, like the, the how the, I forget how he called it, the like the Elon Musk example, you know. So like he has, he has some, uh, and you will see that in the website. So that's exactly the areas where we'll be a little bit custom or modern. And talk to us about launching the category. If I remember right, you did a press conference to announce it, which seems like an interesting choice. I don't hear about press conferences that often. Was that a deal? Uh, was that a success? How do you think that went? So that's a good sign, right? If I at least know that the launch happened, that's a good sign. People know a good, it's a great sign. I also love the fact that you asked if it was a hashtag fail because I would call it a hashtag not impressive. It was like a thing that we did. We needed to do something. And one of the people that helped us with the category creation, we really did like leverage a bunch of geniuses there. Everyone for their own core community. Dave Gearhart was one of them too. Dave Gearhart from uh, from Exit Five, and uh, he had the right idea of, hey, you're building a community. You know, you're building this too. You're building this for. Ask them for the name. Launched with them the category. Launched with them. So that was kind of where it came about. We're like, hey, let's do this press release, quote unquote, and bring in some people from the industry and tell them that, hey, we're doing this. Because we kept looking, we kept looking for like validation or what's going to happen and how is the category going to start. And there's like, there's no event. No one is going to like, okay, you know, it's your year now. We're going to announce your category. No one's going to give you, sh- no one give you shit about uh, what category you, you define yourself in. So you have to be your own megaphone. That was Dave Gerhard's point, which I agree with. And we said, hey, look, we don't really have a big megaphone yet. This was before ending and, you know, this was before pre-everything, pre-brand. But we had a little, you know, a little uh, Amazon speaker and we used that one. And that's, what, that's the one we started with. And then fast forward two years, you know, uh, we have 7,500 registrants for demand conference. And so today we have a bigger megaphone that we can use, but I think it was a good, it was something that we knew is not going to, probably not going to be amazing. And it ended up not being amazing. I think uh, Jason was more pissed because he always wants to prepare a little bit more for these things. I think he did a great job. And uh, overall, you know, it was maybe not the most impressive press conference in the world, but it was a great starting point for the category. And this may just be like my outside view, but it seems like your category has like slowly taken over the website where I saw at one point it was like one little page or not one little page, you know, it's like one page. Now I go on the site, it's everywhere. Was that by design that you have like a master plan of we're going to slowly take over the website? Absolutely. You know, there's always the balance between what you're offering today and what you're offering in the future. And I tell the same thing with the companies, like we're trying to fix something, some KPI, and it's not like once we fix the KPI, it's game over. Once we fix this KPI, next year, it's not a KPI, right? One year is revenue, one year is retention, one year is gross margin, one year is cost per customer acquisition cost, what have you. So with the category equation, was kind of the same. Like, okay, we have this big idea. Now we know what category we want to be belong to it. And our customers, so on and so forth. We have a name for it. That's great. Are we going to just go and 
tell everyone we're an operating system because people have no fucking clue what the operating system is. And they're going to ask, are you guys still doing the advertising period? And are you still doing the data and advertising thing that you were doing before? And we are. And so, but as time went by, okay, we said, okay, that the operating system, there is the audience, there is the experimentation, there is personalization. We didn't have personalization yet before the acquisition. There was a generative AI, but we didn't have generative AI before. There was a playbooks, but we didn't have, we didn't have playbooks before. Mm-hmm. So as we added, now we have all of them, right? Today we have all of those five uh, pillars. And so we slowly, gradually took over the website as the future became present, you know, as the promise became the reality. Today, you get playbooks, you get automatically generated content, you get, you know, personalization. And so today it's a legitimate operating system. And are most of the customers today early adopters and the types of folks who are, you know, looking for this type of technology? Because what I typically see is like investors get very excited about the future state that you're building, but customers don't really give a fuck, right? They just want to know what can solve their problems today. So like, where are you in terms of like crossing the chasm? Are you just hitting early adopters right now or where do things stand? We're still an early adopters world. I have a few signs for it. Like, for example, that I have 25 employees who are former customers. Wow. <laughs> you know, and uh, it's like uh, they use That's the product. Yeah, the great sign, also crazy sign, you know, like they use the product one, two times. They're like, this is a good product. I'm a marketer. This is going to work. And then they start working with us because, you know, customer success, whatever, like the culture. Then they move into the company. So it happened like four or five times. I was like, this is a great signal. Now it happened like 45 times. I'm thinking, okay, this is a proof that we're in the early adopter stage. Also, we have customers who carry us with them three or four jobs, you know, mm-hmm. and then we are still struggling with the math, with the masses, with like with the regular, not early adopter, AI comfortable, you know, comfortable with AI uh, marketer. We still have a lot of education, right? And work and training to do there and kind of move the market and steer it that way. And so I would say prospects care about the general vision. Mm-hmm. For sure, investors care about more, no question. But I'll say in general, the customers care about the vision too, especially the larger customers and or the more senior people. So... The person who gets their value immediately by by this running ads is great. But their boss wants to know, okay, can I get personalization later? Am I going to get more data later? I'm going to have more people churn from my for my team. Do you, you're going to have professional services or you're going to have playbooks and, and training and certification. And so they care about the larger story because they look a little bit further ahead. But that said, you have to keep the balance. If too early, you're talking about something that is obviously not ready, you shoot yourself in the foot because people will come for that and then they'll realize it's not there and then you lose your credibility. Then what what did you really do, you know? This show is brought to you by Frontlines Media, a podcast production studio that helps B2B founders launch, manage, and grow their own podcast. Now, if you're a founder, you may be thinking, I don't have time to host a podcast. I've got a company to build. Well, that's exactly what we built our service to do. You show up and host and we handle literally everything else. To set up a call to discuss launching your own podcast, visit frontlines.io slash podcast. Now back to today's episode. So I think everyone listening in who's familiar with category creation, they know all about the benefits, right? Everyone talks about the benefits. Let's talk about some of the downsides that you've personally experienced in this journey. What are some of those downsides that you personally experienced? Well, the first one is it's cumbersome and it's not very scientific. So to me, that was painful, you know? Oh, I'm going to get in a room with like eight people and for three hours, we're going to talk about words. You know, you're going to call it this word and why this word, not the other word. And let's talk about words some more. And so that to me is cumbersome. It reminds me of just like kind of corporate processes that are painful and very opinionated and it's just not, not a lot of data. That's one. Second one is 
I think the realization that you have to create a momentum yourself. Nothing good. Like if, if Jason and Mark didn't create demand, there would be no demand. And I wouldn't be able to use demand as, an, as, a, as, like as a sign of progress in terms of category creation. You know, so they had to like actually go and execute and do a full-ass conference in order for this category to have a, to have a chance. So I think that the realization of, of starting it and not just not keeping it as a theoretical, philosophical exercise, I think that's, that's kind of like, I call it a pain because it's something you have to allocate a lot of resources toward. It wasn't that category creation was just, we can just, you know, I was thinking at the beginning that we can just do category creation while we're doing our work. But no, it became a bullet point, a big bullet point, like a top three, you know, priority that we have to spend money and time to get it done. I would say another thing that could be painful is that you very learn that you are not creating a new category. Hmm. And I think that could be tough if you're thinking, if you, you know, like you, you build this product and you realize that you're actually just, not just like, I mean, Google was like that, right? Google didn't create a category, but like, but you realize that you're actually entering a very established category and you're providing maybe a better product or, or service of value there. But, and then the final one I would say is distraction. When you're executing, category creation is something I didn't even imagine I would do. It would be so further from where I thought I'll take metadata and give it to someone else that I never thought I'm actually going to go through the, the exercise of category creation. I mean, in fact, I didn't even know about, maybe I've read it before, you know, the entrepreneurship in my MBA, I'm not sure, but I don't think I even knew about it when I just started. And so you have to, it brings me back to that investment of time and money. Mm -hmm. You have to basically strip away some time and money to take this on. If you want to do it, you really have to like sit down and say, hey, I'm going to spend 400 grand on this branding and this consulting and customer interviews and, and, and design and what have you. And it may work and it may not, but it's an investment, something else you could have done, you know, with the same money and time. Was that branding 400K worth of branding? Because I love your branding and I, I think the pictures look cool. Everything looks very cool and feels very cool. But was that 400K cool? I don't know. I, I think I just threw out that number. I don't think it was, I don't think it was for, that doesn't seem like something I would approve. But it was pricey. I mean, the, we definitely spent money on like 50K here, 60K here, absolutely on campaigns. I mean, at one time, Jason did like a truck, I think, or a bus with like metadata with a category like somewhere in LA. And it was just like, all right, we're doing these things, you know, we're doing <laughs> one of these. Yeah, it's like we're doing those, like we did the billboard one, you know, I didn't through this company, I did the billboard one time. And it was, you know, it was effective, but those kind of, you know, you'll never prove something like that when you're in survival demand gen, it has to have a positive ROI immediately kind of campaign, right? That, that will not pass this test. And so now you are doing those things because there is a greater goal or, or objective here. So one thing that I've heard from other companies who are creating categories is that their sales team typically is not very excited about the fact that they're trying to create a category. They have short-term goals they need to hit, quarterly goals they need to hit. And it's hard to sell a product that doesn't exist yet or into a category that doesn't exist. Did you experience that at all? Did your sales team ever push back and say, yo, come on, man, can we just take a challenger position in this thing that everyone buys already? Did that ever happen? Sure, it does. You know, there are many faces of the company, the marketing, so the website, there's the SDR, there's the sales people, the customer success, account management. It takes a second to get everyone around a new messaging, a new category. We did it in our kickoff. We had materials and then we started listening to, to the gong call, joining the gong call, making sure, like helping those things materialize. But look, many times it was exciting. They would use it and they would get excited and use it because it will get a customer, especially a senior person or a larger company excited about the future. Mm -hmm. And at times when a person knew whether it was maybe a 
the doer, the person actually going to use the product. And they knew what metadata was about. Mm -hmm. And uh, they didn't care about the future. They really wanted to concentrate on the nitty-gritty details of what's available today. And then they would steer the conversation there. That's fine. As long as they covered what's going to, you know, at the beginning and at the end, there's an operating system. At the end, it's an operating system. If in the middle, you concentrate on the 90% is around what the customer actually cares about today and for the short term, that's completely fine. There's no problem with that. And so as long as the messaging was there at the beginning of the end and we could tell that they're not messaging the all the value proposition without mentioning it, I think we were fine. Do you think you've lost any deals and any potential revenue because of the path you've chosen to take? Yes. Is that painful? How do you like, how do you deal with those emotions of, you know, giving up revenue, especially crazy times like we're in right now, you're a series B company, I know revenue is important. So how do you balance that in your own mind? Because I think founders are, you know, in similar positions all the time, right? Where you're kind of stuck in between two big decisions. So how do you keep yourself sane as you deal with that? And just talk us through that. It's not different exercise than, than to say, hey, I'm concentrating on, on mid-market and not SMBs. You know, I'm concentrating on this value proposition and not that one. I'm not providing both. No, I'm just doing this one. I'm concentrating on B2B and not B2C. I'm pure B2B. And I've made all these decisions. And you say no to contracts. You say no to customers. You say no to a bunch of things so you can stay focused on your path. That doesn't say that you have to, you know, like cover your eyes and go blindly, but if you made a decision to start a category and this is the category, then stick to it for at least some time to see what happens. If the market accepts, adopts it, there are other companies, other competitors, it's a bigger sale, it aligns with your with your strategy, it's everything, right? Category creation did not end up being just a marketing exercise. It's a sales exercise, it's a customer success when we're doing renewals and, and adding value, it's a mark, it's a product and engineering one, and it's a corporate development when we do the acquisition. So there's plenty of things involved with it. If you're making it, if you're, if you're really steering that way, then steer that way and then allow it to move that direction for some time. You can't just like try it for two months and then, oh my God, I lost two deals and you're going back. No, that's, that's not, doesn't work that way. That's why you have funding. It gives you the leeway to, to see through some decisions. It might be a colossal fuck up. Mm -hmm. I know if it is, my bad. And uh, forget about it. We're not an operating system. Just joking. Just kidding. You know, we're the demand generation platform. But that didn't happen. And so to me, it's just like every other exercise of being focused. You have to say no to some shiny things on the way in order to build the empire you're looking for. You know, you have to be super focused. How much time did you give it? When you were launching the marketing OS category, did you say, okay, we, we're going to give it 12 months or 18 months? Like, was there a time frame and like a time cap that you put on it? And well, I would say about 12 months. 12 months. And what were those big like indicators to know if it's going to work? It could just be revenue, right? I'm sure there's a lot of other things that are probably much more difficult to measure or was it just revenue at the end of 12 months? No, 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 much more than revenue. We wanted to see how prospects talk about us in the first sales call. So we had a lot of uh, alerts in the gone calls, keywords for search. What else did we look into? There were things like that. Oh, how do we find ourselves against competition? How do they define us in comparison to the competition? Yeah. So we had, we had a few of these, uh, definitely not just revenue. Is there a category creator that really inspires you? Let's see. Yes, there are. I mean, they're the ones who created the space, you know, like outreach did a freaking great job. You know, it's funny because it, the tool existed before, but the category did it. Mm -hmm. So that was, I think outreach did a good job. I mean, I love what G2 did. Mm -hmm. I really do. They changed the software market because of that. And so that, I think that was very interesting what they did there. And there is consumer world, right? There's like the, I know, I, I think it didn't end up well. I, I'm, I'm not really good on following consumer news, but the Peloton product 
you know, this is all category. Like, it's amazing what they did there. And so to me, some of those, yeah, some of the consumer product, Dollar Shave Club, even like some of the consumer products. Again, I'm always interested in bringing things from the consumer world because there's so much more reliant on marketing than, than B2B world. And uh, yeah, it's fascinating. Some of those are a super interesting uh, examples. Shopify, you know. Yeah, I think Anthony Canada described it as he's a B2C marketer trapped in a B2B marketer's body. <laughs> oh, Anthony Canada is, thought, is totally <laughs> like that. That's totally true. <laughs> totally true, true statement from him. Now, let's talk a little bit about tactics and strategies that you've deployed as you've evangelized this category. Can you just talk us through some of the high-level tactics and strategies you've been using? Yeah, so we've done a lot of the things that we've learned from the interviews, from the podcast, right? So we changed our pricing. We started a group of vocal customers to help us with analysts. We started mentioning, we did the press release, which was recommended. We started using the advice. We didn't get it directly from, from Benioff because he was on, on the podcast, unfortunately, but we got it from people who worked with him directly of mentioning the category and kind of running it through in every meeting. So we've done a lot of that. You know, he kept using the marketing operating system, marketing operating system when you're still building it. You know, we had a whole section about it in our conference. Mm-hmm. to see how it's being received. And so we've done that. And then we used, we leverage influencers a lot. So we, we leveraged influencers, both marketing practitioners, people like Dave Gearhart, Adam Goyet, Justin Rowe. Like we used a bunch of people. We leveraged their the connection, their relationship with all of those folks to influence. You know, they have an influencing voice to help us essentially be the megaphone for that. Yeah, so we've done all of these tactics. Yeah, I think influencer marketing is obviously something you hear a lot in the consumer world. I think you don't hear about it that much, at least right now, in the B2B world. So what did that strategy look like specifically? And we don't have to talk like numbers or things like that, but how do you go about building a B2B influencer marketing strategy? Yeah, well, in the B2B world, it's easy. We all live in LinkedIn. LinkedIn is the universe for B2B discussions. And so we would just look for the people with who are vocal, have following. Following needs to be similar to the following we want in our audience. And if we align on philosophy, like for example, with some of them, we totally aligned on the philosophy of where the Martech world should go, like with Dave Gearhart, for example. Mm-hmm. And then you come up with, hey, let's do this sponsorship. We're going to sponsor this uh, podcast that you have. We're going to, you know, we're going to talk. We're going to mention this 30-second narrative. And you just close a few of these packages. You also make sure that you leverage it to the T. So we have this thing called a super share in the company where if we send a particular email, we get like a really nice response rate where like 30, 40, 50 people share. Mm-hmm. And so then it's all over LinkedIn. So it happened a few times. It happened because of that. You know, we have 40 people impromptu, organically share and end their own wording. That's how you make influencers. At least that's how we did it. We made the influencers work for us. And I think we just scratched the surface. You're totally true, right about what you're saying about the B2C, the B2B. There is barely, barely anything going on in B2B influencers. There's a lot more to be done there. It seems like it's like bubbling though. You know, it seems like more and more people are talking about it. And I think all of those tactics from the consumer world, they eventually make their way to B2B. So it feels like it's headed that way now. Yep, I would agree. Now, what about conversations with investors? As you, you know, presented this idea of, hey, I want to create a category. Was that something that happened like day one or like when you did the seed round? Or that se- like, no, 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 no. At what stage did you like have that real conversation with investors? And like, did they get it right away? Were there any investors who tried to say like, hey, we're not signed up for this. Like, we don't want to back a category creation play. Well, I think by definition, just to start from the end, venture funds want category because they want new categories. Because when they're the new category and you are leading that category, or even if you're number two, 
there's a great outcome, right? There's a more than 20x outcome for that investor. Yeah. So in general, from what I can tell, in investors, VCs are interested in category creators. To the extent that probably they are pushing some entrepreneurs that are not creating categories to try to create categories. So much so. But I think there is definitely a lot of interest. Did I start introducing in the seed? Hell no. No. Seed stage, even Series A is like just survival. We started talking about category creation probably maybe in the A to the B probably. Between the A and the B, we probably started talking about the category. Probably in, in the B, I think it was already like set. Like, okay, this is the category. This is what it's made out of. Here's the, here's the roadmap to achieve it. I remember that. Prior to that, no. Prior to that, it was much more simplified. This is what we do today. This is how we're going to get the customers. This is how we're going to get revenue. And if we can do this, okay, now we have, we earned a seat to try to do the other, the bigger picture. When it comes to category creation, do you think the end state is always to create a category or is it just more of like a platform to take a more serious challenger position in an established category? And to give you an example of what I'm trying to communicate there, like, HubSpot is someone who comes to my mind there, where like everyone talks about them as an example of a category creator, inbound marketing, blah, 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 all this stuff. We all know they wrote books. They did great stuff. Now they're just kind of in the CRM category. And they're obviously you know doing well there. They're taking that seriously. But do you think that's something that happens a lot where they use the category just to kind of springboard into that more established category? Does that make sense? <laughs> I see what you're saying. I think it happens. I think there's a lot more vagueness in category creation than people care to admit. You know, like HubSpot... It's totally an innovator. Category creator, yes, because of the inbound. Not so much category creator in terms of marketing automation, which is what they've been doing for like 15 years. PRM, not new. Zendesk, not new. But they're doing it in a most innovative way. So yeah, maybe they, I think company like HubSpot had to invent inbound because that was their way of getting into a market share. Mm -hmm. And in the beginning, if you remember, HubSpot was kind of for solos. You know, if you remember, this, the first, like, the performable acquisition by HubSpot that they acquired David Cancel company, it was kind of like a tool for mom and pop shops, you know? Yep. And so later it, it was SMB, later it was mid-market. Today it's mid-market enterprise, just like every marketing automation and CRM out there. So in some examples, I think it's a springboard. In other examples, it is totally creating something new. Yeah, what I typically see in, like, on LinkedIn is, you know, every single example can be, like, heavily debated. Like, even Gainsight, like, I think that, you know, Gainsight created a category, but in the comments, you'll see the trolls, you know, arguing if they didn't create a category and blah, 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 you know, back and forth. So it seems like every category creator is disputed if they actually created a category or not, but I guess it doesn't matter at the end of the day, we're talking about them, so they win. That's, that's, <laughs> it's, that's exactly right. I think that's what you said is very accurate. Every category creator gets disputed if they ended up doing it. And that's by definition, because you're now saying that the game has changed. So people are going to call you up on it and say, no, what do you have? What are you, what are you talking about? The game has not changed. And then if you get enough momentum, enough inertia, mm -hmm. then that's true. Then that becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. And you're like, oh yeah, this guy was right. Or this girl was right. That was the category, the new category. That's why you have to take the first action. No one's going to take it for you. No one's going to, a gardener will never knock on your door and say, congratulations. You know, three years ago when you pitched to us that your operating systems, mm -hmm. you know, we're not sure, but three years later, we are now agreed that the operating system is the right to go. We're going to put $2 million into this category and uh, we're going to invite you to interview and every magic coordinate and every wave, you're going to be up and to the right. That will never happen in the, you know, in the lifetime of software. So you have to make it yourself, create the inertia yourself. Are you working with Gardner and Forrester? 
we are working with some of the analyst firms to do like ROI study and get some research. We have a lot of enterprise customers today, so they work with the with analyst firms, so we want to work with them as well. For those hard checks to write, I hear a lot of founders say that the idea of writing those two analyst firms stresses them out. <laughs> uh, I am not at the stage right now where I'm spending like insane amount of money. Like I'm spending, I, you know, I remember when I worked for Spotfire, we would spend upwards of a million on analyst firms. We're nowhere close to that. So it's not very painful for me right now. We're still more of a grassroots movement. I will put more money still into the conference and the community and our own megaphone than sponsoring analysts today. Do you think firms like Gardner and Forrester are going to exist in the way that they do today, 10 years from now, like the level of influence that they have? Or do you think it's going to be more like kind of voice of the customer G2 type companies that really end up being very influential? I believe it's going to be a mix because there are different personas and customers out there. There are customers that are doing their own, their own research and they're looking for a B2B comparable for Yelp, like mm -hmm. a G2 or Trust Radius. And there is a different buyer that is sitting on a very different kind of office with a very different kind of budget. And they don't care to read like 30 reviews now. They're going to, they're paying someone on the payroll. They're paying them, you know, 100K a month to be their analyst of choice. And they're going to tell them everything there is to learn about it. So I think both will exist for the different kinds of markets. I do think that there is, there is a new breed of analyst firms coming. Similar to what Topo was, many more like those, like go-to-market partners, if you, if you know them, and, and others, who will start, I think, influencing the market more and more. And I think between that and AI and review sites, they will change. The analyst firms will change. But just like the agencies still exist, you know, the Ogilvy's and WPP still exist, I believe the analyst firms will exist as well. And final couple of questions, since I know we're up on time here. Let's just imagine, Gil, I'm starting a new category today. What's your number one piece of advice based on the podcast interviews you did and based on everything that you've learned creating your own category so far? I was about to say good luck. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> if you're creating a new category today, I would recommend to you, first of all, 50% of this whole process is conviction. So, you know, if you know your market well, if you've been your customer in your customer shoes before, if you're innovating in the space, then conviction is super important. And that's the tablet deal. The other half is let your customers, like you, sometimes when you're interviewing a customer and ask them what they want versus you look over their screen and see what they do and understand what they want, you get the two different answers. So as long as you do the latter, mm -hmm. you figure out what words the customers are using to describe you when you're not in the room, that's going to them and investors too, different levels. Mm -hmm. You will learn a lot about your category. So those are the two pieces of advice that I would give you. And maybe the third one will be to start, start to take action. While you're thinking about those things that are afraid to mentioning them everywhere, because once you mentioned, people are going to keep you accountable to it, you know, put some stuff out there, get a feel, you know, put a post about it, you know, mention perhaps the name that you're thinking. You don't have to call it category, but, but put a post out there, put yourself out there, do some testing on the market, sponsor some posts, run a survey, run an email campaign to take some action and get the market, market response versus doing everything in a silo or doing it a research project. That's what it seems like a lot of people do with category creation is like they follow the play bigger playbook and they go through that whole process. They have you know, everything perfect, like in their own mind, I guess, perfect. And then they like launch. But it seems like what you did and I think what other companies have done is it's a much more drawn out process, right? Like, were you making category creation moves before you'd ever even announced marketing OS? Yes, we were doing, we were doing some marketing moves for sure before we 
Yeah, for sure. We, we mentioned it in the cab. We mentioned it in a, in, a, in a many different places, kind of tested out the idea. Kind of more in an agile way, if you will. Instead of waterfall, more of an agile way. We didn't really feel, we didn't really have everything about it, but we slowly, every time we get, okay, it's going to be operating system. Okay, it's going to be, you know, marketing OS. Okay, it's going to be, uh, you know, this is what, what we're about. Like, this is the, the okay, these are the, the five pillars behind it. Mm-hmm. That came gradually. Got it. Makes sense. All right, final question here. Let's zoom out three to five years into the future. What are you trying to build? What's metadata going to look like? Metadata is going to be one of those first solutions. You know, it's going to be Salesforce, HubSpot, and metadata that you that you buy in every B2B company, B2B tech, and also B2B non-tech. Because you would like to have your marketing team, first of all, you want to have full visibility mm-hmm. into what the marketing team is doing. And two, you want to know that your marketing team is not spending a minute of their time or a dollar of their budget not on the wrong companies or the wrong people, but they're only spending time on the right activities. So they're spending time on creating cool ideas and ideation and design and maybe messaging, and they're not spending any time whatsoever on anything that is technical or better than mundane. And that's where I'd like Metadata to be three to five years from now, be a household name in every B2B company as one of the pillars you need to build pipeline and kind of fuel your business with demand. Well, I think you guys are making a lot of progress. Every B2B marketer that I talk to these days, they're talking about you. So I think you're you're penetrating through and you're, you're getting through to the market. And that's just awesome. I'm a huge, huge fan. So, you know, this has been so much fun. I really appreciate you taking the time. I know this is going to be a huge hit with our audience. If they want to follow along with you as you continue to build and just learn more about creating a category, where should they go? Well, of course, metadata.io and then my LinkedIn or my email, gilletmetadata.io. Always happy to talk to fellow entrepreneurs and other people in the category creation space. Awesome. Gil, thank you so much for taking the time. Really appreciate it. Brett, thank you very much for having me. Cheers. Cheers.